Good morning, everybody. Haven't been here a lot since uh, late November. 2020 turned out not to be a great year for the Binder family. We lost our beloved buddy, our 13-year-old Chihuahua, end of February. <clears throat> Andrea lost her brother sometime during the summer. And um, I don't know if Brian said anything while I was gone, but my mother got covid at the end of November, and um, I went to California. She was released. She actually beat it and came home negative, but it took a toll on her, and um, she didn't make it. I was with her for um, three and a half weeks every day, held her hand to her last breath. <sighs> and then yesterday, we buried a gal, a single mom who had been coming here named Maya Keeley, who died of uterine cancer. So it's been kind of a heavy time for me. I came in here with a really heavy heart. And um, it's just good to be back. I wish it wasn't like this. I, you know, I so appreciate being here, and I love the worship, and I like being with all of you, but I miss the energy of a full room of people. Um, so I'm hoping that we get back to some sense of normalcy soon, um, and I hope that we don't look back on 2021 and have the same feelings we had about 2020. I wanted to, to let you know that I actually enjoy watching TikTok videos. Uh, mostly, I like to learn some great recipes from some of the cooking channels, but sometimes I just like to scroll through the videos on the home screen. I absolutely do not recommend TikTok for children, but apart from swiping away unwanted videos, um, I love the humor and creativity and inspiration that I often find in, in many of these videos. I want to show you three of my recent favorites. Here's a creative video about a guy who was no longer surprised about what was happening in 2020. This is an inspirational one about a pilot teaching his girlfriend how to be a co-pilot. I love this one. Four boats. Boat check. Seven. Verify pilot has course for best and worst case scenarios. Check. Verify pilot is willing to give up his life for co-pilot. Check. Oh. Verify pilot will provide for richer or poorer. Check. Confirm co-pilot's left hand is ready for engagement. Check. What? Next up. Is co-pilot ready to accept last name of pilot? Will you marry me, Alibon? Who's flying that plane? Okay. 
And then this last one's about an obsessive, perfectionistic, suburban mom warning. You just might see yourself in this video. So here it is. So, um, speaking of perfectionists, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3. We've been going through the book of 1 John, which appears to describe God as the ultimate perfectionist who expects the same kind of perfection from us, with a very stern warning that failing to meet those expectations perfectly carries some pretty extreme consequences, which seems to be in opposition to what we know about God's grace. So navigating this chapter can be a little tricky, but when you apply a set of Jewish eyes to the teaching in this chapter, we'll be able to see it in its proper context. I'm pretty sure that by the end of this message, you're not going to leave here loaded down with shame and guilt because none of us are able to live up to that, those perfect standards. But I'm pretty confident that you'll leave here today feeling inspired and motivated to attain to a higher level of faith, which is John's intention when he wrote this book. So let's jump right into 1 John chapter 3. I suggest you fasten your seatbelt. Do not move about the auditorium because it's going to get a little bumpy at times as I read through this section. And I'm reading through verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to read through verses 16 through 19. Just going to go right through it. So here we go. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that they did not know him. Dear friends, we are children of God, and what we will be has yet... uh, has yet been made known, but we know that when Messiah Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Okay, this is where you want to give a little tug on your seatbelt. Here's where it gets bumpy. No one, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does, who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Okay, Whew. can relax. It smooths out from here, all right? And um, please make sure you listen to the rest of this reading, okay? Tune in. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Anyone, if anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions in truth. 
This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Is your heart at rest in his presence? It will be by the end of this message, okay? If you're feeling a little verklempt about what these verses are saying, then consider yourself normal because the teaching seems very contradictory. On one hand, it it seems to be saying that Jesus came to earth to take away our sins. The other hand, they also seem to be saying that now that Jesus has taken away our sins, we better not sin any longer. And worse, if we do sin, we're really not born of God. We're, we're not a child of God. We belong to the devil, which is pretty tough teaching to reconcile with God's grace. So let's see if we can figure out how to unverklempt ourselves. And let's do this with a, a quick poll to see how this actually plays out in real life. So raise your hand if you consider yourself a born-again Christian whose sins have been washed clean by the atoning blood of Messiah Jesus. Raise your hand. Good for you. Okay, welcome to the tribe. Now, those of you who just raised your hand, raise your hand again if you've never committed a sin since the day that you became a follower of Rabbi Yeshua. Okay? There are no hands up, but keep it up. (laughs) Actually, I did see one or two hands go up, all right? Um, I assure you that we would get the same response in most churches because every believer who has ever lived commits sin on a regular basis. Because the reality is that we we were sinners before we put our faith in Jesus. We're still sinners today. We will sin until the day that we die. The reality, that reality will not change until after we die or until Messiah Jesus returns, whichever comes first. Because then, as John clearly states in verse 2, when we finally see Jesus in his full glory, we will see him as he truly is. And because of this face-to-face encounter, we will finally be 100% like him, meaning that the sheer impact of his radiant glory, his radiant presence will cause us to live perfect lives. In that radiant light of Messiah Yeshua, our shortcomings, our failures, our inability to love each other perfectly fade away forever. And if it's true that we will continue to sin until that time, how do we reconcile the rest of this teaching that seems to suggest that we should be perfect right now? Well, honestly, I have no idea. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. So let's see what we can do here. John, whose real name is Yochanan, that's how you say John in Hebrew. Um, John was Jewish, just like all the other writers of the New Testament were Jewish. And so once again, in order to get the proper context in this passage, it helps to put on our special Jewish glasses when reading, and that's exactly what we're going to do right now. One of the consistent, very Jewish themes throughout the Bible is God's holiness. The Hebrew word for holiness, which is the same for the word holy, is kadosh. And the ha-kadosh, the holiness of God, refers not only to the perfection and the purity of God's nature, but that God and God alone is holy. Remember we just sang that? For you, O oh God, are high above the earth, which means he's, there's, there's, there's nobody like God. He sits distinct from it. 
He's above all the other gods. He's 100% set apart from his, the rest of creation. Exodus 15:11 says, "Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders?" 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, "There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you." And because of God's distinct, set-apart, holy nature, and because he can never be uh, or consent to anything less than perfect, because that's just who he is, it's so important to understand that the standard, listen to this, the standard for human flourishing is predicated upon the holiness of God. That's the first of two points I'm going to make in this message. The standard for human flourishing is predicated upon the holiness of God. And in order to grasp what this means for us humans, it's also important to understand that, yes, God is perfect, but he is definitely not perfectionistic. When we talk about perfectionism, we are typically talking about a set of shame-based traits that are driven by unrealistic expectations. And those shame-based traits often manifest themselves as obsessiveness, rigidness, inflexibility, trying to over-control everything and everyone in their life. A perfectionist can never really attain perfection they just have an unhealthy, dysfunctional obsession with believing that they and everyone else around them need to try to accomplish being perfect. And so it's important to understand that God is not trying to become perfect. He's already perfect, and there's a big difference between the two. John previously said in the first chapter of 1 John, right in verse 5, this is the very first message that Brian gave, Chapter 1, verse, or 1 John um, chapter 1, verse 5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so there's absolutely nothing dark or evil or sinful about God ever. And this means that God's, he's not trying to become perfect. He's not working on it, right? Everything God does is already perfect. Everything that God says is already perfect. And we see throughout the scripture that the bullseye, uh, that we humans are to aim for is God's perfection. In Leviticus 11.45, God says, be holy. Why? Well, because I'm holy. Jesus reiterated it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore. How? As your heavenly Father is perfect. And so holiness or perfection is the bullseye that we are to aim for. Why? And this is so important. So listen to this closely. Because to emulate God's perfect nature ensures the best outcome for human flourishing. That's why. To emulate God's perfect nature ensures the best outcome for human flourishing. And because of this, God will never lower the standard or settle for less. God's holy nature is always going to be the bullseye that you and I are to aim for. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Brian talked about a few of the Hebrew words in the Bible for sin, and he mentioned that one of them carries the idea of not being able to shoot an arrow straight enough in order to hit the bullseye. And since the bullseye is holiness, 
or perfection, we can never shoot the arrow straight enough to hit it because none of us are perfect and none of us will ever be perfect in this lifetime. And this is why Romans 3.16 clearly says that we all sin. We all fall short of God's glory, which guarantees that we can never attain to this unattainable standard. And yet God still says to us, aim for the bullseye. And I believe that with this impossible standard in view, John is framing this paradoxical tension in chapter 3 with a very familiar Jewish way of mental processing. And if you have a Jewish upbringing, then you you're probably already familiar with this form of processing because it's as common as eating gefilte fish with horseradish, which also helps to be Jewish to understand what the heck that is, okay? It's a way of self-talking or, or thinking through difficult, often contradictory issues by using a, on one hand, and on the other hand, form of processing. Here's what it looks like from a scene on Fiddler on the Roof where Tevia is trying to mental process his daughter's desire to marry a poor tailor who will have trouble putting enough food on the table for his family. And he's having trouble reconciling the contradictory tension in this scene. Beginning to talk like a man. On the other hand, what kind of a match would that be with a poor tailor? On the other hand, he's an honest hard worker. But on the other hand, he has absolutely nothing. On the other hand, Things could never get worse for him. They could only get better. <laughs> and I, I really believe this kind of paradoxical processing is similar to what John is doing here in this passage today. On one hand, the best outcome for human flourishing is 100% perfection. But on the other hand, 100% perfection won't happen until the Messiah appears. On one hand, God expects us to behave perfectly 100% all of the time. But on the other hand... He knows we won't be able to do it. And I I think if you think about this, on one hand, don't we expect our kids to behave perfectly 100% of the time? But on the other hand, don't we know they won't be able to do it? I mean, think about it. How many of you parents only want your kids to be good 40% of the time? Now, I know for some of us that would be a great improvement. (laughs) But of course, we all hope that our children would be upstanding sons and daughters, not just some of the time, but but all of the time. And how many of you employers only want your employees to be honest and trustworthy 30% of the time? Of course, your expectation is to be honest and trustworthy all of the time. God's expectation for us is no less. But the big difference is that every parent and every employer is imperfect, but God is never imperfect. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, and he knows how destructive darkness is for human flourishing. And for this reason, God 
And God alone is the bullseye that you and I should be aiming for in order to support sustainable human flourishing. If we want to be everything God created us to be, if we want to live our lives to the fullest, if we want to contribute to the best outcome for human flourishing, then we need to aim for God. We're going to miss a lot, but as the old saying goes, if you aim at nothing, then that's what you're going to hit. And don't worry when you miss the bullseye. John's got that covered, right, on the other hand, because listen to this, to what John wrote earlier in chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But on the other hand, if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, Messiah Yeshua. The righteous one. I hope this is, is like sinking in a little bit. It's making sense. And God's mercy, he provided absolution for our sins through faith in Yeshua. As our he- perfect heavenly parent who only wants the best life possible for us and everyone else, he will never make the target easier to hit. But never forget, never forget what Psalm 103.8 says about God. In fact, let's, let's read it together. Can we get it up here on the screen? Let's read it together. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Let's do it again. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This phrase about God is repeated many more times in the Bible as if we need to hear it time and time again. And so when you read something like the verses in 1 John chapter 3, where it seems like God is just the opposite of these qualities, take a deep breath and say to yourself, I need to put on my Jewish glasses in order to get the proper context of what this means. Got it? All right. So the standard for human flourishing is predicated on the holiness of God. But there's one more point to understand from 1 John 3. If you miss this in the text, you're going to end up with a shame-based theology. And here's the point. Radical love, not sin, is the intended focus to best support human flourishing. I'll say it again. Radical love, not sin, is the intended focus to best support human flourishing. Sadly, as Christianity moved further and further away from its Jewish roots over history, moral failure became a primary focus rather than simply seeing that sin impedes our ability to love in radical ways. Morality matters, so don't hear me say that it doesn't, but somewhere along the way in our history, we began a crusade against morality, and we began to shine a huge spotlight on human behavior. And in our obsessive crusade against immorality, we even added human behaviors that are morally neutral. Like a moral Christian doesn't smoke or drink or play cards or dance. Men don't have long hair. Women don't have short hair. Good Christians don't come to church dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. And don't hang out with that riffraff. And honestly, there's a lot of churches in this world where Jesus would not be welcome to attend for this reason. And any time there's an emphasis on morality rather than an emphasis on love, 
you know you have an unhealthy, toxic, shame-based religious paradigm. Jesus was once asked by a Jewish teacher of the Torah, Matthew 22, this is verse 37 through 40, which is the greatest commandment, which is the greatest law, which is the greatest of the mitzvot? That's what a commandment is in Hebrew, plural, mitzvot. And remember, if there was ever an authoritative work on morality, those 613 commandments of the Torah would definitely be it. But listen how Jesus answers this question. He says, to the answer, what's the greatest commandment in the Torah? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your your mind. In other words, love God with all of your being, every part of you. And he couldn't just boil it down to one, right? And he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he finishes by saying, all the law, all the prophets hang, hang on these two commandments. It's it's, an amazing declaration Jesus is saying. That we can boil down the entire Bible to just two simple Concepts, radical ways to help us love God, radical ways to help us love others. And John makes it very clear in our passage this morning that conquering sin matters, but don't miss for even a second that the reason why it matters is not to please the moral majority agenda, it's to free us up to love God and others in radical ways. And after coming on pretty strong about how important it is to aim to hit the bullseye 100% all of the time, to avoid sinning 100% all of the time, don't miss that John finally arrives at verse 11 and clearly says that the reason that this is so important is because, and he says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. And what does he say the message is? That we should love one another. This is his summary of what he had just said. And what beginning is John talking about? Well, he's talking about the beginning of time, the the beginning of God's story. Genesis 1-1, where God pressed the play button and got his story started. In other words, it's always, it's always been about love and nothing else. Simply put, 100% of the time, sin interferes with our ability to love well. End of story. And when you think about sin this way, you understand more about God's laws. Murder is just not a way to love somebody, is it? It's not a good way. Adultery is not a good way to love your spouse. Neither is stealing a good way to love or lying or or gossiping, or being prejudiced, or not helping people in need. Why does sin matter, and and why is the target 100% perfection? Because this is the message you heard from the beginning of God's story, that we should love one another. And 1 John 3 is not a chapter intended to guilt us or, or to shame us into living a moral life. It's a chapter intended to inspire and motivate us to love God and to love everyone else in the best and most radical way possible in order that we can promote the best possible outcome for human flourishing.
And where does John say in this chapter that our inspiration and motivation is to come from? Well, verse 16 says it all. This is how we know what love is. That Messiah Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John will say it this way in the very next chapter, in chapter 4, 1 John 4, 19. We love. Why do we love? Because God first loved us. And of course, Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul, Romans 5, 8, says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... While we didn't believe in God, while we weren't thinking about God, we didn't want to believe in God, while we were doing horrible things, that's when Jesus died for us. No one cares more about our inability to live a perfect life than God. I mean in a compassionate way, right? The Lord is compassionate. And he himself solved this problem for us by coming to earth as a man named Yeshua. Just in case you don't know, Yeshua is Jesus' real Hebrew name, and it means God's salvation. Yeshua. God's salvation came to earth to save us from our sins by taking the penalty for our sins upon himself, laying down his life, and shedding his blood on that cross. And the worship team can come up now. So that you and I could be set free to live and love unhindered. Without the shame and guilt that comes from our failures. Or the fear of the eternal consequences that follow. And it's called amazing grace. So typically, we, we do communion once a month, and you all had these little cheesy communion cups, COVID communion cups, I call them. And um, one of the things that Jesus, and you know, if you don't know how to use this, there's a little thin piece of plastic that you have to take off the very top to get to the wafer. And then just below that, if you pull off the rest of it, you'll expose the grape juice. And I hope all of you at home are going to join us. It really doesn't matter what you, you can have milk and graham crackers, but it, it does help to have something that's red to drink. I'll never forget, <clears throat> I did a wedding years and years ago, and somebody put their their um an aunt in charge of they were, they wanted to take communion after they they said their vows and they put their aunt who didn't have any kind of a church experience in charge of bringing the wine and she brought a nice white zinfandel so it just kind of changes the picture but this juice represents the blood that Jesus shed and this cracker represents Jesus' body broken for us. And you know what Jesus said? He said, as often as you drink and as often as you eat these communion elements, remember me. What are we supposed to remember about Jesus? Jesus. 
Well, number one, remember how much God loves you. Remember how 1 John 3 starts out? How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Because deep down, deep down in your soul, our most basic need, our most important need is to be loved. And it's not that easy to find it here on earth. It escapes a lot of people. There's a lot of hoops to jump through, a lot of disappointments. But how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. And when nobody else, you feel like nobody else loves you, God never gives up on loving you. Even before you were born, God loved you. Another thing to remember is the price that God paid to come to earth to atone for our sins. Another act of his love for us. And the other thing to remember is that we could could fearlessly and shamelessly keep aiming for that target and keep missing it. Because in God's eyes, when you trust in Jesus, in God's eyes, he sees you as holy and blameless, which, I, which I'm sure is why a couple hands went up earlier. That's how God sees us. We know that we don't live a holy and blameless life, but when God sees you, that's what he sees. I mean, absolutely, that's what he sees. a Passover Seder where Jesus took the bread and he broke it and as a good Jew he would have said blessed are you O Lord our God King of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth let's eat this he took the cup and he would have said blessed are you O Lord our God King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Let's take this together. And Lord, I know we live in this tension, this paradoxical tension that we're to be perfect, and yet we can't be perfect. And thank you for resolving that. This communion table helps us to resolve that so well. And as the words to the song that we're just about to sing say, we would want to build our life upon your love, Lord. Your love for us is our firm foundation. We put our trust in you, in you alone. We will not be shaken.
And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.